Um, my name is Randy Ray, for those of you that I don't know. Um, I am the senior high youth minister here at Grace. I work with high school students, um, grade 9 through 12. That's what I do. If I don't know you, it's probably because you don't have kids in my ministry yet or kids that age. Um, once they get there, we will become great friends, um, I can assure you. Tell me if you can remember a time in your life where you were ignorant for signing up for something. It shouldn't be hard to remember. In the context of, you know, you signed up, you filled out the paperwork, um, you know, you turned in the form, you thought you were getting A, and you got B. Let me tell you of a time that it happened to me when I was in um, high school, I think. I was in ninth grade. And my parents, who were here, um, obviously as good parents, very selective of the music that I was listening to as a teenager. And achieved the goal I wanted to achieve of listening to music that they wouldn't approve. I got in one of those CD clubs. You know what I'm talking about? You see in all the magazines and everywhere, it's the postcard in the middle of the magazine that says, you know, for one cent you get, back then it was 14 tapes, and you buy one tape throughout the year. And that's the deal. And you're thinking, man, that's a great deal. Of course that'll work. That's Mom, I was so zealous to get the mail for that year every day. Because my plan was fill out the thing, pay a penny. I mow yards. I can foot the bill for a $15 CD or tape once a month. They'll never know. It'll be great. That's what I thought. When in all reality, I was signing up for the biggest headache ever. You can't get out. I mean, once you're in, you are in. And it totally blew my cover because I had to go to my parents and explain what I had done and then say, help me get out of this. No longer do I want it. I don't care about the music anymore. I'll tell you what I've been hiding. I want to get out. Why in the world would I start off with such an odd illustration? Here's why. With your students and your grandsons and daughters, we just finished a two-year study of the book of John. And this is the way John ends his book. He spent the previous 21 chapters building up his case for faith in Christ. And it's like, now in the last part, he comes to the summary and says, Okay, who wants to sign up? Who wants to become one of these disciples? It's great grace for us tonight because of this. Fallen man, such as you and I are, are so ignorant and so often ignorant of what we are dedicating ourselves to, to follow or to sign up for. We could all go around and tell stories of, yeah, I remember the time I did this or that. To avoid such a misunderstanding in this text... There's great grace for us because Jesus reveals to Peter and to us exactly what is required to follow him. Well, what is it? Let's look at that together. If you've got a text, we're going to be in John 21, verses 15 to 25. Let me set the text in its proper context since we haven't been studying it together for the last two years. Directly before this event, the disciples were out fishing. They didn't catch anything. Um, You know, the story probably Jesus tells them to throw the net over. They do. They catch all the fish. 
Peter sees that it's Jesus and they jump off the boat and he swims ashore and they're all sitting there and they have breakfast with Jesus. And we could spend all night on what that may have been like. But we're not. That's the context. They're on the side of the Lake of Galilee. They've just eaten breakfast that Jesus has cooked for them in a post-resurrection appearance. And now we get to this. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now there's great debate over what that means. Does he mean, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than this fishing gear? Because I know that you really like to fish. I don't think that's what he's talking about. As we go on, I think we'll agree. He's talking about these disciples that are sitting here. I'll tell you why I think that in a minute. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who had leaned back on Jesus at the supper and he had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Which is John. Peter saw him. He asked, Lord, what about him? By this point, they're up and walking somewhere, obviously. Jesus answered, verse 22, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other miraculous things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Let's pray before we turn our attention to the study of God's Word. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we do um, come this evening desiring to to gain truth and and insight from your Word. and, And we begin by acknowledging it as that. Your Word is truth. Uh, it is us, your, your creatures who have fallen, that are so in need of truth. And we pray this evening, by your Spirit, by your grace, you would give us the ability to understand this text. That by your Spirit, you would, you, would, you would minister these concepts to our heart and our mind and our wills. What is the cost of following you? I pray that by grace that would result in more obedient living for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This text... It's kind of like a CD club for everybody tonight. Here's how, before we dive in. You are either one of three people. Everybody in here tonight is one of three people. You're either already in, meaning you are already a follower of Christ, and you're reflecting upon your membership as we study this text. Many of you are probably doing that. What does it cost to follow Christ? And we're going to look at this text, and you're going to say, yep. 
Some of you, perhaps, are debating joining this thing. What is it? What am I signing up for? I don't know. I've heard a little bit about it. The third group is in and going, what in the heck is going on? Because perhaps like an ill-informed member of a CD club, you thought you were getting this. We thought we were getting health, wealth, and prosperity. And it hadn't ended up that way, has it? For some of us. Clarity is laid forth for everyone here tonight in this text regarding what we must know to follow Christ correctly. According to our Lord, there are three things in this text. The first is this. If we desire to follow Christ, there is a barrier that must be removed. If we want to follow Christ, there is a barrier that must be removed. You can't just decide, hey, that sounds great, I'm going to start. No, no, no. There is a problem for every one of us, namely our sin. Our sin prohibits us from following Christ. Something that is impossible to do until it's dealt with. Where do I draw that from the text? I think it's the theme of verses 15 to 17. <clears throat> there is a reasoning for the threefold question that Jesus asked Peter. Do you love me more than these disciples do? Why on earth would he ask such a question? The reason has to be this. To expose Peter's sin. You'll remember if you've studied the book of John, they haven't really talked, Christ and Peter, since the night that Peter denied Jesus three times by a fire at night. He's seen him in a couple of post-resurrection appearances, but he hasn't spoken with him yet. Before Peter can be commissioned, before he can be reinstated, before he can follow, his sin has to be dealt with. The story that takes place before this one in the text, in the context, Jesus and the miraculous catch, I'm convinced is a parable. If you study it. The point is, just like it was at the beginning when the disciples were called, apart from me you can do nothing. This is perhaps the same place where these disciples were called to leave their nets and follow Jesus. And it's like they've made a full circle and he's reminding them, apart from me you can do nothing. Spiritually. Now, if that's true, and I think it is, remember what Peter said 16 nights ago at the Passover meal? If we were to recollect time according to this text. One of you will betray me, Jesus said. And do you remember Peter's response? Not me. Every one of them may. But it won't be me. I will die with you. Really? Insinuating there, I think, that even if they all do, my love is greater than theirs. That's what makes the question make sense. See it now? Do you love me now? That you've denied me three times more than them? Have you learned yet, especially after this, this, this episode that just took place in the boat, that apart from me, Peter, you can do nothing? Nothing? I think he has, because it's very interesting the way that Peter answers the questions, isn't it? No longer is it, I, I, I. Peter's response is now, you know that I love you. I'm not basing it on me anymore. 
But there's more here than that, I think. Of course, Jesus could have just asked him once, but he does it three times, provoking a response of hurt in verse 17. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? This is a very significant piece of Johannan irony, I think. Because of what took place 16 or 18 nights ago. Threefold asking of the love of Christ by a fire. But here's something that John weaves in. John made very special notice that night in detail under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that we knew it was night. But it's not night anymore. It's the morning. Before Peter can follow Christ, his sin must be dealt with. Yes. His denials must be replaced with affirmations of love and loyalty to Christ. Yes. We would call that repentance. Here's the point, I think. Does initial repentance hurt? Yes. Before we follow Christ, our sin must be brought to Him and repented of. But there's a huge difference between the denials and the repentance. And it's this. And this is the beauty of the Gospel. The beauty of the Gospel, the beauty of grace and following Christ is this. Failure isn't final. Yes, we begin at repentance. Does initial repentance hurt? Does dealing with our sin hurt before we can follow the Savior? Absolutely. But the beauty of that is no matter what you've done, It's not final. Failure is not final for the believer. No matter how desperate has been your failure or how deep your shame, he forgives because failures are not final with God. So knowing that, we should be prompted to go to him. Knowing that repentance hurts, yet it's for our good. I've got a two-year-old daughter, three-year-old daughter now, fixing to be four. And she figured out real quickly that shots hurt. You got a kid, you know they're smart about that. And of course, wanting our our kids to love truth. She asked me the next time she went to the doctor at a coherent age, am I going to get a shot? And I was like, great. I'm impaled upon the horns of this dilemma. And I said, you probably are. I mean, you're probably going to get a big one, you know, because they give you like four or five things at once. And her eyes, she's just contemplating these things. And she said, Dad, is it going to hurt? And I'm like, oh. And I said, you know what? It is going to hurt. It's going to hurt bad. But it's going to make you better. If you don't get these shots, there's a bunch of diseases that you can get. Now, did that make the needles jabbing into her thighs hurt less? No. But she went knowing it's something she had to do to get better. Here's the point. Does true repentance and sorrow over offenses towards God hurt? Yes. Ask Peter. Yes, it does. But you must go knowing that grace awaits you. You must go knowing that your failure isn't final. My friends, don't be fooled tonight. If you haven't gone to Christ over sorrow and repentance over your sin, you're not serving Christ. You might be following yourself or your pride or your religion, but you're not following Christ. 
Following Christ must begin here. There is a barrier that has to be removed. Secondly, and much more quickly, according to this text, in order to follow Christ, there is a responsibility to accept. Who got told that at summer camp in 7th and 8th grade? Surely not me. Friends, forgiveness paves the way for service. There is no such thing as passive service in following Christ. There is a task to be done. Where in the world do you draw that from the text? Again, I think it's laid forth for us in Christ's response or commission to Peter's answer of, you know that I love you in verses 15 to 17. You know that I love you, then follow me. But it didn't end there. There was a responsibility. Follow me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. There's a task, there's a work to be done, Peter. To follow Christ means to accept responsibility and care for His sheep, His people, His church. Commitment to Christ must involve a commitment to the church. Christ is a married person who comes to us with a bride which He loves and sacrificed Himself for. For us to claim to be in a relationship of following Him while not caring for or liking the church, His bride, is incomprehensible to imagine. It cannot exist. Let's imagine. This will be a stretch, I know. Let's imagine that you are just really taken by me tonight. And let's imagine that this... 29-year-old who works with the youth, I just really struck a chord that resonated with your being somehow. And you thought, you know what? I want to get to know him better. And so we start hanging out, and we do the things that you like to do, and you're just shocked. You know, you tell your spouse, he likes to do everything I like to do. Who would have thought? It's unbelievable. And we get closer and closer and closer, and we go to Starbucks and have coffee every Monday morning before work and our relationship is just growing and you, you call me one day at the church and you say, we've got to go to lunch. I've got to tell you something. I say, all right, that's great. And we go to lunch and we sit down at the table and you say this. You say, Randy, I love our friendship. You don't, you don't know what it has become to me. I mean, it's, and you just spill your, your guts over how much it means to you. And I'm like, that's great. And you say, but there's one problem. There's a big problem in the way of our friendship. And I say, what? what? I mean, what could it be? And you say, I can't stand your wife. My wife is here, by the way. <laughs> now, I hate to burst your bubble, but if that happens, our relationship can only get so deep, can it? I mean, we can still hang out and we can still do things, but there is a level of intimacy, if you're going to know me, that you can't get to know if you don't have the same love for her. It's impossible. She's so much a part of my life through marriage and covenant and bond, it's like a two for one. My friends, the point is this. To turn and accept Christ is to turn and accept His bride as well. Jesus' love for the church remains spotless, untainted, pure and strong, even when she doesn't. 
The church is still his bride. The church is still the people for whom he died and are the burden of his concern. To love and serve Christ is to love and serve the church. Okay, so what do you want me to, is this guilt? What are you asking me to do? This. My friend. If there was a task for Peter upon following Christ, <clears throat> there's a task for you. Nobody is called to passive service in the call of the gospel. The question is, where have you been called to serve? Now, to answer that, you've got to understand one thing, I think. To answer that, you've got to understand your gifts. What is it that God has gifted you to do in order to serve His church? Figure that out under the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit and do it like mad. It's what you were created to do. Lastly, this evening, to follow Christ means that there is a cross... To be carried. They didn't tell us that there was a barrier to be removed, probably. They didn't tell me that in the beginning. They didn't tell me there was a responsibility. They surely didn't tell me this part. If you're wondering what the cost associated with following Christ is, here is your answer. As with Peter, having accepted his commission to love and serve Christ in his church, he is immediately confronted with the cost in verses 18 to 22. The cost, Peter, in short, my friend, is everything. Have a good day. Though we all have our individual crosses to bear, and I think that's a great point of you know, he says this thing, and then, of course, Peter being Peter, turns around and says, what about John? Jesus says, don't worry about John. You follow me. Following me entails something different for you than it entails for him at this point. Peter is confronted with the reality in verses 18 to 19. Let's look at it together. Here's what it's going to cost you, Peter. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, okay? But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death in which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. You know what it's going to cost you, Peter? Your life. This is a foretelling of Peter's martyrdom. You will be bound. You will be dressed you will be led where you don't want to go, and you will be crucified for this. Peter, you're forgiven. Take care of my church. But understand this, Peter. It will cost you everything you have, even your life. I'm going to follow Christ tonight. You might not be martyred. You may. But it will cost you as well. Following Christ will cost you everything you have. Matter of fact, that. If you haven't read this book, I would highly encourage it. I know they're in the bookstore. I bought one a couple of days ago. Uh, this is J.C. Ryle's Holiness. Unbelievable book. Listen to what he says in this chapter on counting the cost. But it does cost something to be a real Christian. According to the standard of the Bible, there are enemies to be overcome. There are battles to be fought. There are sacrifices to be made. 
There is an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs must to win the victory. Hence arises the unspeakable importance of counting the cost. Okay, here comes the natural question. Who in the world would want to sign up for that? That's probably why you don't hear that taught that much at evangelical crusades in 2004. Who wants to receive Christ? Come down front. Now, let us tell you some bad news. It's going to cost you everything. That would kill giving in the numbers. Why do Peters and others sign up to give everything they have? There's a story that comes from the annals of ancient Mideastern history regarding Cyrus the Great, the conqueror. <clears throat> True story. It had been discovered within his ranks that one of his general's wives had committed treason. And she was guilty. They brought her before. They tried her. They sentenced her. And it was going to be death. He reads the sentence and the woman's husband, this general, makes his way down to Cyrus's throne and requested, Please let me take her place. She's the traitor. She did wrong. Somebody's got to die. Let it be me. And he rose to his feet and said this, Can we terminate such a love as great as this? That this husband would be willing to sacrifice for his guilty wife that's committed treason. And he paroled the woman to her husband. <clears throat> this is what's amazing. It's reported that as they left the court, the general said to his wife, Did you see the benevolent look in Cyrus's eyes as he pardoned you? Was that not amazing? Did you see his face? Did you see the glimpse that he got of, of our love for one another? This is her response. I only had eyes for the one who loved me enough that he was willing to die for me. Why in the world would anybody sign up for something that involves everything? That will cost you everything? My friends, only when viewed by grace... Only when viewed through the lenses of what has been done on our behalf do we give up everything and follow Him and understand nothing else matters. And say at the end of the day with David Livingston and the rest of the martyrs, sacrifice away with the Word. Everything I had to give wasn't a sacrifice compared to what I received in the Gospel. Let's end tonight with these words by John Calvin. The Christian life is in this sense a continual mortification in which daily and in a thousand ways we die to ourselves and do the will of the Lord. What a privilege and what a grace it is for you and for me that our Lord would allow us the privilege of doing so. Is there a cost? Absolutely. Is it everything? Absolutely. 
to know what you're signing up for. The eternal benefits and graces so far outweigh the cost that Paul says it's not even worth comparing. May that bring you grace wherever you are tonight. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you our Father. We know um, there was no cheap grace paid so that we could do that. And we bless you for that this evening. We do want to thank you and praise you afresh and anew and right for the gospel. Um, forgive me for the years that, that the cost wasn't counted, that games were played, um, that I don't know if I would consider following you and, and, and Lord... We bless you in the gospel. There is set a right for us. What the cost entails. And by the grace of the Spirit, we want to thank you this evening for the privilege to pay and for the privilege to follow. Because the cost that we give is in no comparison to the glory that awaits us on the other side of the grave. We praise you for that. We bless you for that. I pray, Lord, that this grace from your text and from your word and give us a desire to serve you with great zeal and humility this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.